Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Analog Eternal Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrent Studies. The ANWI Deterrent Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NuclearCast. Of course, as always, as on all but one episode, I think, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Bob Peters. And we're going to talk about, so welcome back. Thanks, and, Adam. Thanks for having me again. It's great to be here. And we're going to talk about the Strategic Posture Commission's recently released report, uh, unfortunately, that report, which was, you know, the Strategic Posture Commission was bipartisan. It was half Republicans, half Democrats, and it had folks with a long background in nuclear issues from both parties. And of course, the report turned out in ways that many in the arms control community did not expect. They did not expect some of their fellow Democrats to sign off on a report that ultimately called for, you know, new nukes, differentiate or greater, you know, addition of nuclear, of new types of nuclear weapons. It was, it was a bit stunning in how the report came out. And there's been uh, a Twitter storm or a uh, social media form formerly known as Twitter storm and Bob has been following this and paying close attention to it. And in many respects, he has been as surprised by the reaction or for the media, the complete lack of coverage of this. And so we thought we would talk about that today. So with that, Bob, why don't you give me your and give our listeners your sort of initial thoughts on this, you know, on the report itself and then on the media coverage and the disarmament community's reaction to the report. Yeah, thanks, Adam, and, and thanks again for having me on. Um, you know, I think the report um, that came out earlier this month in October, we're recording here on the 30th, um, I think it's really important. I mean, as you pointed out, it's, it's bipartisan, um, six men, six women, um, and it was a good mix. I mean, you had think tankers on there, you had um, uh, arms control ambassadors on there. Rose Gottmiller was on there. Uh, General Hyten, former uh, uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Um, you have professors from Georgetown, uh, think tanks, Department of Energy, Department of Defense experts. It was really about as, as good a commission as you could pull together. And they, um, they achieved consensus on the document. And, you know, in, in a nutshell, the document says, we have to have far greater conventional capabilities um, in order to deter our adversaries. They, the term they use was there's a deterrence gap when it comes um, to the United States and Russia and the United States and China. And they said, we have to have more long range strike munitions, more um, fifth generation aircraft, a larger or, uh, uh, Navy surface fleet and subsurface fleet. And if you don't, build all those things, you're going to be forced to rely upon nuclear weapons to enable a secure and, and stable deterrent relationship. And then they start talking about what are some of those 
um, you know, revitalize nuclear capabilities you're going to need. And they talk about, you know, road mobile Sentinel, which is the road mobile ICBMs. Um, right now they're supposed to be silo based and, and the commission put out an idea with which I heartily agree is that we need to look seriously at fielding road mobile Sentinel. Um, they talked about theater range, um, nuclear capabilities that could be fired off of a C platform. Um, so they're pretty much referring to slick men and they were talking about the need to revitalize the infrastructure that goes into producing new warheads. And, um, they kept the door open for a larger arsenal and, you know, um, I agree with almost everything they wrote. I think it's astonishing that they are able to get consensus between some of the very different viewpoints there for those who I term as, as like the nuclear realists who are very sympathetic to our need to have a strong and robust nuclear arsenal and, and those who are more inclined for a more uh, reductionist uh, perspective on trying to shrink the size of the arsenal. And they came together and said, you know, um, given the threats, given the breathtaking expansion of the Chinese arsenal and, and what the Russians are doing and the general state of the world we're in, we need to reinvest in the nuclear arsenal for the next several decades. Um, I think what it, you know, what it comes down to is, is I think this is kind of the rebirth of the American arsenal. Um, when you look out over the next half century, it's astonishing. Yeah, yeah it was, it was, you know, yeah, I had to chuckle whenever I saw the report and just what it, uh, what it said, because I knew, you know, some of the, you know, Rose Gottmiller and Leonor Tamaro have been staunch sort of reductionist over the course of their careers. And then, you know, you've got James Acton and John Wolfstall and Hans Christensen and the arm, you know, the disarmament organizations that are, that have just got to be apoplectic in terms of, you know, this and, and just, the you know it's it's sort of one of those you know it's a period in which the idealists have been you know mugged by reality and how have they in terms of what you see in it because you're you know you're in in the beltway and you deal with these folks regularly as opposed for those of us who are out you know in flyover country what's been the what's been the reaction to this report because I'm not, I'm not reading about it in the, you know, the Washington Post or the New York Times, or I'm not reading about it anywhere. Yeah, there, you know, I, I think you're right about that. The media reaction has been um, incredibly muted. I mean, I think the Wall Street Journal did a single article on it. Um, the Washington Post, the New York Times didn't, um, even though they were invited, is my understanding is they didn't send a single reporter to the rollout. Um, um, the two media organizations that were at the, the actual physical rollout um, was the Wall Street Journal and Arms Control Association. Those are the two media outlets that are there. So there's been some little pieces that have been that have come out in like real clear defense and defense, defense news. Um, but there hasn't been a big, you know, splashy, you know, media piece in, on the front page of, of the Washington Post or the New York Times or, you know, their Sunday pieces, which is a bit mystifying. Um, to your first question, you know, I, I think the reactions from our friends in the disarmament community, like, as you pointed out, you know, Daryl Kimball and Matt Corda and James Atkins, it's been one of 
you know, um, disappointment, uh, <laughs> uh, in which, you know, I think that they're disappointed with some of the folks who they saw as their natural allies, uh, like Ambassador Gottmuller, as you pointed out, and, and uh, Leonardo Tamara and so forth. Um, I think there's some disappointment there that they see them as embracing um, a robust role for nuclear weapons as a cornerstone of America's deterrent. And I think that in some ways, they still look at the world as though it's 2009, 2010, in which the United States can lead the way for a reduced role for nuclear weapons on the world stage as part of a long but but steady march to global nuclear disarmament. And, you know, in, in 2009, I had some sympathy for that position, but 2009, frankly, was a long, long time ago. And the world's security environments has degraded significantly since then. And so I, I think a lot of times when you're in our business, you need to be very careful with yourself when, um, when new information comes to the forefront, does it change your internal analysis? Does it change your decision calculus? Does it change, do new facts change what you believe um, should the outcomes be? And so if, if you know, Russia invades Ukraine in 2014 and, and then the mid 2010s starts threatening to nuke, you know, countries like Denmark and, and Poland, um, and, and, and China under Xi Jinping is on the march and threatening to um, invade you know, their neighbors and, and uh, Iran, according to the Defense Department, is, could have enough fissile material uh, for a nuclear weapon within two weeks. And the world security environment degrades over the past 10 years. Do you change your analysis and say, okay, well, you know what, I, I think it is time to build the nuclear arsenal for the 21st century? Or do you say, no, no, we just need to try harder at confidence building measures and arms control treaties and um, strategic dialogues and unilateral uh, nuclear reductions? If you don't change your analysis, I have to question whether or not you're still an objective analyst or if you're simply an activist, right? And the difference is an activist, it doesn't matter what kind of external factors there are the end point is still the same. They're just an activist who's trying to get to an end goal. An analyst looks at what is the new information coming in, what are the developments, and then how does that impact um, my analysis and do I need to change? And and so I think a lot of our friends in the nuclear disarmament community, to be honest with you, I think they find themselves outside the mainstream at this point. Yeah, I've long thought it wasn't simply activism, that it was you know, it was a sort of a cult-like belief in, you know, when you give inanimate objects, you know, moral, you know, moral logic and moral reasoning, it's, that's one of the things you, you don't sort of, you sort of take that, that ability away from people and give it to, you know, in this case, a, a weapon, then you've sort of lost the ball in terms of being an analyst. And then you're, in many respects, like you said, it's, it's a fervent religious belief. And that's where I think it's been so detrimental to us security. But the, one of the things that, that I've struggled with and, and tried to, you know, and I've written about it is 
and I think the the Strategic Posture Commission kind of fell into this as well, this mistake, and that is that if we were to build more conventional capability that's actually really good, the problem with that is that our adversaries can't match it. And so therefore, they rely more heavily on nuclear weapons. And so this is a spiral effect. And so the advocating, well, we need these conventional or we're going to have to rely on nukes. It, does, it doesn't really work that way because you're not taking into account what your adv- how your adversary is going to respond. Yeah. So I think you're, look, I think you're exactly right. And I'll double down on that. So if, so you oftentimes you hear this from our friends in the disarmament community is like, well, we, we just, you know, we, we have enough conventional munitions and, and they're so super precise that um, we can achieve all of the effects we want to with these conventional capabilities. If they actually believe that, that that's where they wanted to go from a deterrence perspective, they would be arguing for about a $1.2, dollars defense budget. And they'd be arguing yeah. for the 600 ship Navy, and they'd be arguing for, you know, 2,000 long range anti ship missiles and 20,000 Tomahawk cruise missiles and intercontinental range prompt conventional strike and a huge buy of fifth generation aircraft. And I, I don't know, 500 B-21s, whatever, like whatever that number is for the B-21 force, it would be enormous. And they would be screaming about, I mean, in a way that would make Bridge Colby blush, the amount of conventional <laughs> capabilities that they would want. That's what they would be screaming for, but they never do, which makes you wonder, do they really believe in this? Or is this simply a tactical argument that they make to get them the end goal of nuclear reduction. But 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 your other point is spot on is that the Russians have said for 20 years now that because they can't match us in precision guided conventional strike regime, they have to go to these non-strategic weapons. Whether you believe them or not, that's their argument. So if you actually did double down on the long range conventional precision strike regime and you took the Russians seriously, that that's why they've built these things, well, then why wouldn't the Russians go from 2,000 monsters to do to grow up into 4,000 or whatever that number would be? This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Analog Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. No, I, I agree with you. And that's one of the things that I'd never real, really hear anybody talking about is how do you deal with that problem? Because we know that, you know, we have a gap in non-strategics in, you know, short, medium and intermediate range, lower yield, non-strategic. New, we have a huge gap there. And the Russians, you know, that's where the majority of their capability fits is in that area. And, and I wonder why we haven't learned, because if you really go back and look, I think INF and what happened with INF and the, the Reagan administration's reasoning there to build the capability to then bargain it away. And I generally don't like this idea that, you know, war is all about bargaining. But in, in this case, there was a bargain made. And I wonder why we're not sort of looking back at past successful examples, it's, it's actually one example where arms control w- worked in our favor. 
It's one of the few examples. And I wonder why we're not actually talking about that and saying, well, how, you know, is there a lesson to be learned here? And is there a way to essentially create, you know, everybody wants to talk about stable deterrence. I'm not exactly sure how that's defined, but they want to talk about stability. But by creating gaps, I think you create instability. And then trying to plug it with conventional munitions that are easily, certainly eminently usable. I'm not sure that creates the stability that you're looking for. Right. So, and, and like strategic stability, it can be hard to define. I, I, I personally define it as you have a strategic relationship that's stable if neither side has an incentive to strike first, particularly with a nuclear weapon, right? That those, that those incentives have been removed. And in point of fact, there's disincentives there for either side to strike first, right? Which is why we have assured second strike capabilities in our SSBN force. Um, you know, various countries make different investment decisions in part to pursue strategic stability. And that's part of why there are certain confidence building measures, um, such as data exchanges and um, the various hotlines and, and all that stuff, right? And, and all that's good. But, it, but if you have a situation in which the Chinese have theater nuclear dominance, because they've built dual capable theater range missiles that um, can carry conventional or a nuclear warhead, that can track both fixed targets like our bases on Guam or Japan or, or, or Australia and uh, nuclear um, theater range missiles that can strike an American ship that's under steam doing 30 knots in the West Pack or the Philippine Sea. Um, and we've got nothing. We have no theater nuclear weapons in the Western Pacific to speak of at all, period. That's destabilizing. Because, because if I'm China and I say, well, I've got all these theater systems and the only thing the Americans can strike back with is either gravity bomb that they have to fly from North America and then fly over my country through my integrated air defense systems, drop the bomb, have the bomber turn around and fly back. Or they're looking at um, uh, an SSBN, a ballistic missile submarine firing a low yield weapon. Um, and then you look at the asymmetry of the target, I would say that's highly destabilizing. Like, and I, like personally, like, I think that is the period, the area in the world in which there, we have the greatest amount of strategic instability and it's to our detriment and to China's favor is in the Western Pacific. And that's, that's, that's a result of our um, lack of investment decisions. And, and I would offer a very conscious decision on the part of the Chinese to invest in theater range nuclear systems. And, and to yeah, me, I mean, it's stabilizing. It does seem that the Russians, I mean, the Russians and the Chinese follow American politics. They understand where we sit in terms of the political debates in this country. And it's pretty clear that they know what we're not doing. And then they, you know, they flow into that area. And it's, so it, you know, it's, it sort of holds us back. It's a, it's a restraint on us. I wonder, do you think the Strategic Posture Commission report will ultimately give, and the administration has long, you know, Senator Biden was long an advocate of arms reductions. So it's not that he's changed his policy from when he was in the Senate or, you know, when he was the vice president, 
But do you think this will give the president, you know, and he may, if he wins a second term, you know, or maybe it's a new, you know, we, we don't really know what's going to happen in the 2024 election, give them cover to do something dramatically different. Cause one, you know, when you have constituencies and one of president Biden's constituencies is the arms control community. And so I wonder when you have that constituency and you've made promises, can you, can you sort of break those promises because the strategic environment has changed or is it more akin to, you know, George HW Bush's, you know, no new taxes. And then he, he, you know, raises taxes and then loses the election. Yeah. You you know, I think as you're correct to point out is that, you know, uh, president Biden for 40 years has, has not been a fan of nuclear weapons and that that's fine. You know, that that's his opinion. And, but I, I think the impetus for change is going to come from Congress. And I think um, what you're seeing is a bipartisan understanding that uh, the arsenal is not in a good place and that we need more capabilities to deter the authoritarians who are on the march. And that's why I think both in the 2023 and now in the 2024 um, National Defense Authorization Act and the Defense Appropriations Act um, that both the Democrats and Republicans in Congress are saying, no, no, we need Slicka Men, which is the sea-launched nuclear-capable cruise missile, which is really ideally situated as a deterrent weapon for the Western Pacific against China. They're saying, no, no, you can't retire the B-83, which is our, our large, big cloud, crowd-pleaser you know, bomb that the Biden administration tried to retire, uh, unless you've got something to replace it. And Congress told that to the administration. And um, I think what you're going to see in Congress is a desire for um, a more diverse nuclear arsenal that's got more variety and capabilities, and that is larger. And I think that's going to be the driver um, throughout the course of the Biden administration, whether or not the president wins re-election in 24 or not. And we'll just have to see, you know, if, if President Biden loses re-election, whoever the Republican nominee is, whether or not um, he or she will take this up as an issue. I personally think that the Strategic Posture Commission represents the new mainstream in, um, in nuclear thought and deterrence thought within America. And those who are on the disarmament side, they're no longer part of the mainstream. They are outside the mainstream. They're frankly extremists at this point. And I think that you just need to look at Congress for that. I think you look at Brad Roberts' report on China's emergence of the second nuclear peer that came out in spring of 23 as an example of that new mainstream. Strategic Posture Commission is an example of that new mainstream. Um, and, and so we'll simply see if the disarmament community continues to marginalize itself and isolate itself. Um, and frankly, whether or not it's still going to have any impact on the policy debate. And I think that they're at a point now that they're making themselves irrelevant to the policy debate. Yeah. It's hard once you've built such a sort of a staunch position that, you know, to to come off of it. And it's, you know, whenever I talk to folks about, you know, having been a member of the nuclear maximalist for a long time, I, you know, I often say, well, listen, I don't really care about nuclear weapons per se. I care about how do I achieve the effect right now? I have to rely on nuclear weapons, but if I could do it with rods from God or lasers or, you know, you pick, 
I, I don't really care. I'm just trying to achieve an effect. And nuclear weapons happen to be the tool that I can achieve that effect. Whereas when you moralize something, and this is, so for me, it's not an issue of morality. It's neither good nor evil. It's just a tool. But when you moralize it, the challenge for that is that you can't all of a sudden say, well, we've, we've now decided that they are in fact moral. That, that's, that's just something you can't do. I, I think that's exactly right. I think it's exactly right because you paint yourself into a corner in which you have no other choice other than to oppose them come what may. And I think you're exactly right. I mean, for me, I want to deter nuclear war. And, and for me, in the, in the environment in which we live, because man is flawed, and we can only in, influence the decisions of, of, the, of the dictators in, in Moscow and Beijing only so far, um, the best way to prevent nuclear war is to have a credible and robust nuclear deterrent. And, and, and my concern is that the folks who moralize nuclear weapons and see them as inherently evil, as you pointed out, inherently evil, are making it more likely that we'll see a nuclear war because of their policies. And I think that's why they've made themselves increasingly irrelevant to the policy debate. So it's that time in the show where I like to bring out Bob. I don't. And so Bob is my magic genie. And if I rub my lamp and you're granted three wishes about, so we've talked about the nuclear posture commission report. So in relation to that, Bob grants wishes. Now world peace isn't one of them. It's only related to the Nuclear Posture Commission report. So if you had three wishes about that, what would wish number one be? Okay. It would be that um, both nominees for the 2024 um, election, Republican and Democrat, read the report themselves. And they don't have, you know, an aide read it for them and then they summarize it for the boss. I, I, my wish one would be that they read the report take it to heart. And then they made an address to the American people and, and to Congress. And they said, you know, um, we tried hard to get to a world without nuclear weapons under President Obama. Unfortunately, people didn't follow that that direction. And, and we live in a world in which the authoritarians are on the march and they're invested in nuclear weapons. I hate that we're here, but we are here. And therefore, we need a credible nuclear arsenal for the 21st century to ensure that deterrence is stable and successful for the next half century. Um, that would be thing one. Thing two, and that follows from thing one, would be the president calls in the secretary of energy and the NNSA administrator, who's the person in charge of the agency that builds the warheads and produces the plutonium and all that, he calls those two people into his or her office. And the president says to the secretary of energy, um, you've got the grid, you've got the power grid, you've got renewable energy, you know, nuclear, you've got all that stuff. You leave nukes to me. And then he turned to the NNSA administrator and said, you're going to be in my office once a week, give me a report on this because we are falling behind in our ability to produce plutonium pits, to produce the other exotic isotopes that go into warheads. And by God, we're gonna be cranking out warheads no later than 2030 because we need to catch up because we need to not only do the one-to-one -one replacement for the current arsenal that's rotting in place, 
but we're going to build a larger and more diverse arsenal that will ensure American freedom and prosperity for the next half century. And you're going to get on it. And you're going to fix this. That's thing two. Thing three, wish three, is then um, the president goes to Congress and sits down with Republicans and Democrats in the Senate and the House and says, um, look, um, this is not going to be cheap. Um, we need to spend money and we need a larger arsenal um, and more diverse capabilities. And I'm not an expert. I wasn't elected to make the arsenal great again. I was elected to, to do other things, right? But I do understand that this is really, really important. And, and so we need to force the Pentagon to do the analysis that's necessary for what is the size and composition of the strategic arsenal. And maybe it's road mobile ICBMs, maybe it's road mobile Sentinel, maybe it's more bombers, and we need more capabilities at the theater level. And, you know, maybe those capabilities are a sea-launched nuclear-capable cruise missile. Maybe we need an anti-ship nuclear-capable um, uh, missile. Maybe we need hypersonic missiles with a nuclear weapon on there. In addition to all these other things that we need, which is a larger Navy and more F-35s and, and, and more long-range precision strike munitions and all that stuff. Um, and, and so we need the money. It's expensive. But this is a priority and this is what we need in order to secure American freedom and prosperity. And then we begin the 2030s in which we're cranking out warheads and we're building more theater range capabilities and we've got a new arsenal. So by 2040, um, we're in a really good place. And that place is not an arsenal that's as big as Russia plus China combined, but it's enough to ensure uh, American security and deter nuclear war, which is, you know, kind of the goal of this whole operation. So you mentioned not as big as Russia and China combined. Why why do you say that? Because there, you know, there's rationale for, hey, you've got three adversaries. So it's not Russia and China. It's Russia, China, North Korea, and potentially Iran. And then you've got, you know, the United States and, and the UK on the other side. Yeah. And if, you know, Matt Kronig was one of the commissioners and he's written a book about this and his whole premise is, the country in a crisis, the country with the larger arsenal is the one who achieves their objectives when it's two nuclear armed, you know, nations in the crisis. Right. And so why would we want to put ourselves in a position where we might not have parity? So look, it's a great question. It's a really good question. So part of it is, I don't know how quickly we can catch up to the Russians plus the Chinese. I just don't know if that's technically feasible in the next 10, 15 years. I don't know if it's politically feasible uh, in Congress, like both for the amount of money it would take to build that. And, and I, so I don't know how feasible it is. But then the third point is, is I don't know if that's necessary. And so you go back to Galois, the French nuclear um, theorists in the 1950s and 60s, who said, you don't actually need, and, and look, I think Matt's a great guy. I think he's brilliant. But Galois would say, you don't need an arsenal as big as the other guy. You just need to convince the other guy that you don't, that that he can't achieve his desired goals without incurring so much cost as to make it un, unworkable. And so that's not to say that I embrace minimal deterrence. I certainly do not. But I don't think to have a credible deterrence, it has to be the Russian arsenal plus the Chinese arsenal plus 10 more weapons. I don't think that's necessary. Maybe I'm wrong. 
Yeah. It's a, it's a good, it's a good point of debate. And the challenge is, is we don't have, you know, sufficient hard data to prove either way. That's, that's the biggest challenge is we just can't say with much certainty because for, for good reason, we don't fight nuclear wars, which is, that's a great thing. Deterrence has, has held for 70 plus years, which is exactly what we want. But uh, I don't ever want it to fail. I think you and I would agree. We never want to be in a position where it might fail. So last word before we end the show. What would, what would be your takeaway for the listeners about the Nuclear Posture Commission's report? Um, I, you know, I think that it is a, I, I think it's a report that, re, that is going to be looked back upon as being like the dawn of a new nuclear age. And which it, which you know, fervent believers in nuclear reduction have said, you know, we need to reinvest in the arsenal and have a credible deterrence, and and they made common cause with folks who are who who may be inclined to begin with to have a robust and credible deterrence, and that's simply a reflection of how dire the situation is, and I think that this is going to be the the beginning of the next stage of the American deterrence. I think it's a really important document and I encourage everyone to go out and read it. It's, it's very accessible. You don't need a master's degree or a PhD to read it or understand it. It's written so that anyone, um, you know, with a high school education can read it and understand it to its right. Bob Peters, research fellow at the heritage foundation. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun. And thanks to you, the listeners for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast, and we'll see you on the next episode. Well, great talk with Bob Peters as always, you know, it's uh, funny. I always enjoy what Bob has to say and most often agree with him. So it was good to hear from Bob and to talk about the strategic posture commission report. And I don't know if you've read it or at least read, you know, sort of the, the executive summary but it is somewhat surprising what the, you know, given the composition of its members, how sort of pro-nuke it was. And then uh, to hear the arms control community on Twitter and it's just the, the reaction certainly been interesting. And I think it's uh, for many of these folks that sort of made these supportive uh, decisions towards the the arsenal, I think it, it should be indicative. It should be sort of like a, a flashing bulb of, of just how difficult of a situation the United States is in. And, and it's really, you know, it was good to have Bob on to sort of talk through this with, and what are the, what, you know, what are the implications? So I don't know about you, but I enjoy it. This has been a production of the Anwa Facebook and Twitter at Nuclecast.